Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. So I'm here talking to Scott A. Ford, uh, and I'll just, uh, before I forget it, I want to say that his website is scottafordart.com. Yes. Um, and Scott, uh, you know, is a writer and illustrator, and I don't know what else you might call yourself, a comic book creator. Yeah. Um, graphic designer as well. Yeah. Graphic designer, uh, you've, a colorist, I guess, all yeah. sorts of different things. But um, his most recent book is a book called Archiland, uh, although he's got a number of other works we'll, we'll talk about. And his most recent project, uh, I guess you'd say it would be, well, well, I know you've got some work in this great anthology, uh, This Place, 150 Years Retold. Yes. Um, and also um, online, again, at his website, scottafordart.com. Yes. Uh, you can see... Um, Actually, a lot of free uh, material, which we'll kind of get into a little bit. But one of his most recent things is a serialized uh, story in the Manitoban uh, newspaper. Yes. Uh, and it's available also online at the manitoban.com. It's actually manitoban.com slash category slash boreal. Yeah. <laughs> but you can go to his website also, uh, like I said, and click through to it. So there's a lot of his work that you can see online. Um, I want to talk about some of the projects some of the major sort of projects you've done uh, and a couple of like smaller ones over the you know, course of your career so far. Sure. Uh, but let's just, and the specific thing I want to just note is like the reason I really want to talk to you is, um, so this podcast is called Writing the Wrong Way. And one of the, it's my cutesy name, but like yeah. the sort of core idea of it is I'm really interested in, in, in writers. Uh, so, you I mean, I'm interested in your illustrative, uh, your, like your graphic work, but in some ways more as so far as it connects to storytelling you know like telling stories with these images and uh, just connects to the writing aspects uh, but also like I'm really interested in writing that works in or, or are stories that work in an unconventional way or have some like unconventional aspects so the thing that initially got, got me interested in your work uh, is actually your like second I guess you say big project yeah Giant's Well so I actually just like maybe to start with that. Can you just like describe what Giant's Well is? So Giant's Well is arguably my most experimental comic to date, which is a uh, unfolded uh, accordion book uh, that uh, sort of uh, visually kind of looks like a two D sprite based video game that uh, you read your way down, and the the whole book unfolds over twenty feet long. Um, which is also available as a free webcomic on my site, just as a long scrolling image you just read your way down, um, which is not unconventional in a webcomic format, but uh, a little less common in a giant 20-foot-long printed format. Um, but I decided that I, I wanted to do something crazy and ambitious and and take this, this webcomic idea and, and print it in a hardcover folded book. Um, well, it's also interesting to me because, uh, you, of, of course, as you say, it does, and you can see this online again. If you go to scottyfordart.com, you can see, uh, you can scroll down the page, yeah. like read down this, um, again, it's kind of almost like a video game-like descent into this yeah, uh, well. It starts at the top of this, uh, this cold mountain, and it follows this little old man and his cat going down this well that turns into this... Uh, this strange, spooky cave, and as you read your way down, you slowly find out why he's going down this cave and sort of the history of this place. But what's so great to, about it to me is that when you get the physical uh, object, like this, you know, paper book, mm -hmm. uh, accordion book, as you say, it, it it's really you kind of fold it out. It's one twenty-two. Is it twenty-two it's feet? Twenty-two feet. Twenty-two take, foot, yeah. um, single panel comic. Yes. Uh, so if you actually take this is something you can't really see well online because you're scrolling down. But if you get the physical object and just unfold it along the hall or something, yeah, um, you can see like it's it, it's a single image. 
uh, you when you're scrolling down the interwebs, <laughs> you know yeah. you couldn't, you can't see the image at a glance like the way that you can if you unfold it all out, and it is an image like of you know this, uh, which really gives this other dimension to the story. Yeah, that was kind of the the intent is is not just playing with the format and and you know taking this this web comic format and and printing it, but you know, there's a lot of very small details, uh, you know, on the micro level, but then also on the macro level, uh, you know, you can see this greater image of what the shape of this chasm is, which is this sort of hollowed out remains of, of these giants that, so the name of the book, Giant's Well, it literally is a well from these, these ancient giants. Um, yeah, that was, that was one of the main reasons why I wanted to print it out so that people could appreciate it you know at at a glance but also at this very specific details and there's little there's little secrets here and there you know you can see bats hanging from the caves or i think there's a little che- treasure chest or some skulls hidden in little nooks and cranny of the chasm just like you know easter eggs in a in a video game um but yeah it it works on on uh, a couple of different levels and the one thing that i do want to touch on before before we move forward is you said that it's a a, a single panel comic uh, but it, it's a single image comic, but the way that I always saw it was that the the glow uh, uh, emanating from the old man's torch almost becomes the panel. Well, that's what I wanted. The second thing I want to talk about, like, because, again, on one hand, it's, it is like a single image comic that, again, if you move away from it and you look at the whole thing at once. Yes, it's like um, a map. It's like a map. It's like a map. It has this, it's this sort of s- single picture mm-hmm. but at the same time but then at that distance you can't read it correct but once you yeah. get close to it uh, and as you say you're you're just going down it then you do have this sort of way in which although it's one image it actually is a story unfolding across time and then every time you kind of the, the, like that that man appears in these different lights and glows of this lamp yeah. so that was the sort of thing i'm just interested in on a writing level is how did you uh, come up with that really simple and smart solution to the problem of I'd like to think of writing as a sort of, um, or storytelling even, you know, whether you're using language or pictures or whatever. Like, I think a lot of storytelling is solving these creative problems. Uh, and I think one of the problems, quote-unquote, with, like, the concept there is how do you move through time in a one yeah. image? As opposed to appearing like there's multiple versions of this character mm-hmm. in a single landscape. Um, and usually paneling w- w- like helps us do that. Like yeah. From, you know, even if you had a single image on a page, often conventionally what somebody would do is break it into like five panels to show these five time frames that happen on the same street, say. So you might have, like that's a conventional way that that will work in, in a comic page, right? Is like you've got one image that they break into six panels. And mm-hmm. then even though like the panels together constitute a single image, we, we understand like these time jumps are happening and the, when the character shows up, twice in the same sort of image because it's two panels we get like the time break but you're doing a different thing it's a a similar concept in a way but it's It's almost reversed Mm -hmm. you know and even even reversed in the in the sense of the colors because you normally think of panels as images on a white background uh typically for comics and this is images on a stark black background and the glow everything uh you know within the cave is just pitch black, and the only details that you can see are where the the old man is with his torch, or other light sources coming from other lanterns in the cave, uh, and that's the only way you can see details in the world. Um, so, how did you actually arrive at that idea? Like, the, I'm, I'm gonna, trying to think. As I move through the well, I'm going to solve the problem of how to shift from time to time in this way. I'm, I, you know what? It, it was because I made it a, a few years ago. I'm trying to think how I arrived at that idea. And, you know, uh, I might have seen other artists uh, doing something similarly or, you know, like I was saying, it's very video game inspired. Uh, that's not an uncommon feature in video games to have a segment where, you know, it's pitch black and your character needs to carry a torch to navigate this hmm. this uh, obstacle. Uh, sure, and then as, like, your torchlight goes you know you get close to an object now you can see it's there yes it almost is it is a time reveal and that it's like a story reveal in a sense yeah and so uh the trick here was was pacing out the story so that the the character uh 
progresses, not just progresses through this chasm, but progresses at a pace where the glow of his torch illuminates the path down so that you you can always trace where he's been. You, you know, there's there's never a, a, a huge gap between, uh, you know, one location and the next where you can't really make out, wait, how did he get from that point in the cave to this point? You you can trace through the glow connecting the dots of, you know, you can see a hint of a stairway here and then you can kind of trace where that stairway would end up, uh, which leads to a ladder, which you can vaguely mm-hmm. see illuminated and then la- that ladder clearly leads to this pa- platform, etc. Um, so it was, it was, yeah, it was kind of a puzzle in that sense of tracing out the the pathway down this cave and then placing the character uh, through that environment and other light sources um, in in a way that also paced out with the dialogue of the story, which I think was the trickiest part was writing the script uh, for the story. I think I, I drew the full map first and then I wrote a script and then I started placing that script into word balloons that then corresponded to the character placements. So then did you initially, when you came up with that, the idea for this, did you first have the idea of doing this, you know, one big image um, and then we're going to move down it? Or like what, what kind of came first in terms the, of the concept? The format came first. I, sure. I loved the idea uh, and I, the title came first. Uh, I can't remember where the title came from. Uh, actually, I think it's inspired by uh, Dante's Inferno. I think the last layer of hell, even even underneath... The ninth layer is a the frozen the, lake where Satan's. Yeah, and I think underneath entombed. that is the giant's well, which is the passageway back to the surface. Yeah, that's or, right. He or, has to go. I can't remember precisely, but there's like a cockatus is the name. Yes, of this frozen lake that the um, the monstrous you know devilish creature. I forget precisely now, but yeah, he's frozen there. And he has to go more or less underneath it. Yeah, and so, but then deep underneath that. Is the way out. Uh, is the way out, and so I, I, I like that idea of, of of going, going deeper than the the deepest part you think even goes, and also the idea of of descending in order to emerge, as sort of a strange kind of flip flop of mm-hmm. of ideas, um, or or a paradox well, in that sense. Well, it also has the Dantean idea of you know he's going to save this woman in a weird sort of way. Like, like, like it's not exactly what he's doing in Inferno or even here, but there's that idea, like as he's going down the well in the comic, he's talking to this, um, spirit more or less. Yes. And as like, uh, he's like telling the spirit and him are kind of talking about the story of how the well came to be and so on. And as that's happening, um, you eventually you get to sort of, the reason why he keeps going down this well, yes, which has like a practical purpose, but also has this like more like emotional, you know, reason that he's the one who keeps doing it, and this is why he's talking to the spirit and so on. Is really an interesting um, uh, kind of way that this. So the story even just becomes about this guy is going like here is why I am going down the well. Yeah, he he basically has a job <laughs> mm-hmm. and and he lives at the top of the mountain and he is the caretaker of the well and so he routinely needs to descend the well in order to maintain it in a very physical practical sense. Um, and through that descent he uh, you you get the idea that he routinely encounters this spirit that he has a history with, but uh and he has, you know, grown old, and she has not. Um, and you get the sense that while he remembers, you know, their history, she she doesn't quite remember, uh, given her state and given the the history of of how the the well started and the other spirits in the well. Um, that yeah, she she's she's sort of has this perpetual amnesia of their past that is uh that is is hinted at every now and again by by him returning to the well and mm-hmm. and ever so subtly reminding her uh of that past and that's kind of the only thing that's keeping her from becoming one of the other more malicious spirits is is him revisiting the well um yeah basically i i 
I... Uh, but you didn't have that idea first. That was something no. that came late. So, yes, if we're backtracking a bit, I had, I had an idea for the name, and I had an idea for the format. And I tried a number of different concepts uh, for the story before arriving at this one. One of them was more of a modern-day, almost Goonies-esque scenario mm-hmm. of these five kids exploring this spooky cave um, that you know, gets weirder and weirder as they go down. And that was about as far as I got. And uh, at that point, I was starting to try and draw the map uh, of what that environment would look like and why they're going down there and what they find at the bottom, you know, what the story arc would be through that descent. And it just wasn't coming together. Um, And uh, then I I think where I arrived then is is I... I thought that the if this is going to be a single image, I want that image to to represent something as a whole. In the same way, you know, a, a story can represent something as a whole in a, in a more literal context. And so that's when the, I had the idea to make the cave a a large, discernible shape, just as a single object, as opposed to just a random uh, random cave shaped you know blob. Um, and so that's what led me down this, this, this path of a more sort of dark fantasy abstract story with this giant skeletal shaped cave. Now you also mentioned video games a few times. I think of when I look at Arkland, I can also see like oh, yeah. the aesthetic of that. And there are video games literally in yeah. Arkland as part of the story. Yeah, they're playing video games. Plus, um, yeah. the aesthetic of it is very, um, it's very much looks like a video game. Like even like yeah. the, there's a lot of like I don't know what you call them uh, pixel esque uh, like imagery. Yeah. Not that it's pixelated, but it has that kind of square edges yes. on everything. And I'm glad you noticed that because that's that's very important to sort of the symbolism of the story. And uh, the main character Karen in Arkland plays video games in her everyday life, um, and that's part of her sort of routine. Uh, completely separate from the fantastical science fiction uh, reality of their world, but in a way, it, it has this kind of symbolic connection of of the of the sort of uh, broad ramifications of of how this fantasy and sci-fi world came to be. Um, so, can and, you talk a bit about like what is the world in Arkland and 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 kind of how do you do video games fit into that in terms of you? Like looking at like coming up with that story. Well, I mean, pers- on a personal level, I love video games, and I, I am most you know I, I create comics, but I'm I feel like I'm most engaged in a story when I'm uh, playing it in a game, and I'm slowly coming to terms with that. You know, being m- more inspired by one medium, but dedicated to create in a different medium, um, and so I'm still coming to terms with that, but. I love the idea of world building and exploration in a video game, and I think my ultimate goal in, in in my overall career is to create a comic that that feels as as that has that same sense of exploration and discovery as you do when playing a game, but through flipping through pages and uncovering a story through pages and noticing details in the artwork and in the storytelling. Um, yeah. Why not make a video game though? But like, I'm not not saying that you should, but I think it's an interesting question because I have this. I feel a similar way where I, I like to say that I like I want people to do things with my books, not just read them. Yeah. And like my first book was a poetry book, but it's also a choose your own adventure book <laughs> that you like move from like poetic statement. They get they all have numbers, and you kind of hyperlink from one to the other, as opposed to reading the book in a, in a normal fashion. And, um, and and a lot of my books have that kind of weird aspect of which they're trying to ask you to like engage physically with them or or in some conceptual manner or something like my se- my other second book I did a book called Clockfire which is all these instructions for plays that are impossible to produce so they sort of demand that you imagine how they might be performed you know uh, and what that's also again like I say what I drew me to Giantsville initially is this idea that it's, it's a book that you ha- you have to get it and you have to fold it out you have to find a space yeah. that you can fold it out into like I find like that sort of engagement is really interesting and it does approximate the video game engagement on a level where you have to like you are moving the story forward in a very physical way yes and I think that's the the key 
sort of difference between, uh, yeah, why why don't I just make a video game? Is I love the physicality and I love that, yeah, that that tactile engagement with an object, uh, and also as a standalone object. You know, this if you equate a book, you know, moral or a comic, roughly to the same you know size and density of an iPad that you could put a game on that device as an object has like you know hundreds of other operations on it that you can easily flip between and get distracted by but I like I still love that sort of romantic idea of of a book just you know carrying this one purpose uh, on on its own and that's what you know as if you know, you were to buy like a, a video game console that just plays this one experience and that's it. Mm. Um, I don't know why that intrigues me. It's it's just sort of that that focus of an object, uh, the same way that a story could focus focus on a particular topic or something in, like that. In that serial comic, of video games are also just really hard. <laughs> Let me just say that. <laughs> and I think yeah. it's much easier to make a comic than make a video game. And I have not studied uh, video game development. Uh, you know, in in a you know in a specific you know tangible way, um, and I think to tell these same stories that I'm telling in a video game that would that would meet expectations and be fun to play would be extremely hard and very expensive and take a lot more time than I'm already making. And so I can almost explore these ideas faster and more accurately through this medium. Oh, no, there's no almost. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, can. Yeah, right? no, like true. Sometimes students will come up to me and they'll say, like, I've got this great idea. I don't know if it should be a screenplay, like a movie, or if it should be, like, a graphic novel. And I'm like, well, do you have a million dollars? Yeah. <laughs> like, if you, you can write one of these two scripts, if you, you know, you could theoretically write both, but, like, if you can only write one, like, uh, you know, graphic novel is not necessarily cheap to do, but it's not going to cost you oh, yeah. $5 million. Yeah. You know, and five million dollars—that's a pretty cheap movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Um, Especially if you're in sci-fi land, right, or, or something like oh yeah, like this. You know, you got Game of Thrones style storytelling or whatever. Um, it, I mean, all the mediums are different, but what I think is really interesting. This is the other thing that kind of is interesting about your work, and and why I know it's all these video game connections is, again, like I'm really interested in media that takes other media. Uh, aspects that yeah. pulls them in, and so even in in Boreal, that um, kind of serialized uh, uh, like weekly comic you were doing, yeah. uh, you've got this structure, the story structure where the main character keeps dying and coming back, like yeah. just like in a video game. You know, and, and I think that original concept was a weird pipe dream I had for a simple video game that I ended up mashing together with another story idea I had and. That's what I came up with for this weekly comic was sort of... That's how I come up with a lot of ideas is I, I have an ongoing list of ideas and then sometimes I try to mash them together and it makes something more interesting than they are on their own. Um, uh, which sounds kind of just random and haphazard, but I guess that's how I operate. But that's a good way to work. Like, I do that too. Gregory Kamichik that we both know has yeah. that too. You know, uh, he's always got these massive notebooks and... Greg has this great saying uh, he stole from somebody, I'm sure, like, you know, <laughs> don't delete, transmute, <laughs> or, or something along those lines. Yeah. The idea of, like, you just, you know, you file everything away, and then you pull it out when you need it. And I find that it's so, uh, anytime I'm stuck, you know, I just will go, like, through my, like, yeah, little list of ideas, and it's like, okay, well, what can the characters do in this scene? I don't know. I remember thinking that it was it, it would be interesting if, somebody took Count Chocula cereal and poured orange juice in. I wonder what that would taste like. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, maybe one that guy can be horrible. doing that. <laughs> well, well, but yeah, but maybe one guy can be, like, trying to doing that, and the other character is, like, trying to talk to them about something serious while they're doing that, and then now they've got something to react to and discuss. Like, there's all sorts of ways which you can just use that random recombination. In, in the, sometimes it doesn't work. But, oh, yeah. But often, like, it gives you these weird, interesting, odd, um, odd ideas, and, like, uh, with Boreal, I think it's just. I want to come back to Arkland in a, in a little bit, but with Boreal, I, th- I think of one. You've got the um, kind of video game idea of like this respawning character. You know, two. You've got the jackalope. Yeah, uh, like this. You know, jackalope. Well, it's kind of a combination of the mm-hmm. jackalope, the Wolpertinger, which is a an older jackalope esque 
uh, mythological creature, which basically looks the same, but it has wings, and also the the puka, which is a shape-shifting, I think it's Irish, an Irish folktale beast that sometimes takes the form of a rabbit, sometimes a horse, or I think even sometimes a monkey um, as sort of a trickster character. Um, Yes. Yeah. And then also, of course, it's a, it's a weekly comic in the sense of like a serialized story. You've got a um, uh, you've got this very long kind of series of panels that you know go very far down the page. Yeah. Or like online, you know, it's, you scroll down these panelings. So and, and sometimes you'll split that up in a way that suggests uh, there's a couple pa- issues where you split it up where like this underworld. Um, is like at the bottom of the page, yeah. You know, and the kind of the above. You've got a couple moments where you like match uh, two panels, one above the other, and like the one is like almost the reverse of the other, yeah. As I, the underworld, yeah. That was a very specific scene where you see the mm-hmm. the fern, the green fern on sort of the the top side, the world of the living, and then the red fern coming down underneath in the the land of the dead or the underworld mm-hmm. or what have you. Um, so you seem to think a lot about page composition in terms, not just in terms of storytelling, but also as, a, as an object, which I yeah. think is kind of interesting. Yeah, and that's not even something I typically think too closely about. That's something I find more sort of intuitive is, like I was saying, I think about the physicality of these spaces and not just within the panel, but outside the panel and the physicality of how the the panels interact. I mean, that's just sort of, you know, good comic you know, layout design is not just paying attention to each image, but paying attention to how they relate to the other images on the page, um, and and how your eye you know goes from one to the other. Um, Do you find in writing though, like when, when you're trying to tell a story, like are you thinking through that sort of image setup first? Uh, in a manner of speaking, are you thinking through the story and like how am I going to lay out this story? Like, like what's your actual writing process? I so guess is the it, question. it's actually fairly binary. I take one of two approaches. If it's if I feel like it is a more action heavy or image heavy sequence, I will plan out those images first, and then. Uh, go back and see what necessary dialogue needs to be a part of this sequence for story reasons or clarity or what have you, and then those fit those into the image layout I've already planned. Or option B is, is I know already this is going to be a very story-heavy sequence. You know, it's a, the story is moving forward through a conversation um, or, or an inner monologue or something like that, and so then I will write a script first parcel that script once it's all edited and I feel like it's solid enough parcel that script into uh, word balloons and then fit those word balloons onto a page and then arrange the panels around those word balloons um, because I often think of word balloons as a form of, uh, of punctuation um, I will plan out dialogue uh, uh, yeah thinking of with the word balloon in mind you know the difference between a standalone word balloon um, uh, you know, with text in it, or a you know, two connected word balloons, or two word balloons connected by sort of a long, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, connector arrow or or whatever it's called. Um, you know, branch between the two almost becomes like a pause, or you know, you know, can have room for another character's dialogue in between that. Um, at the same time, you know, maybe I've got a you know, a statement that is very few words, but I want to put that in a big empty word balloon just to punctuate that, you know, that statement as something larger, even though those word, those, the words are very few. Um, and then once I have that, you know, that takes up physical space on a page, then I can determine how much of this I can fit on a page, how many panels I need to fit all this dialogue um, and if I need to make any cuts, if I need to, you know, trim down this this dialogue, or or if I've got room to maybe add something extra that I left out. Um, so what I'm kind of trying to figure out with so that's this is really interesting. It's a very physical kind of, uh, you know, collage kind of approach. I think it sounds like Giant Spell is maybe a bit unusual one for you in the sense of like it sounds like you had the idea of this well and going down the well and then you're sort of in the pro after you've got like the formal idea and you're fleshing the formal idea out 
now you're starting to come up with different story ideas and, yeah. and, and how the story idea might move in that space. Whereas it sounds like, so for something like Arkland then, are you starting with uh, any sort of like story in the sense of like, are you planning out story beats? And over, yeah. Are you outlining a thing before you start drawing? Or is it like, where does a sort of idea start with in terms of... Um, like, are you drawing first? Are you writing? Are you doing some weird combination? Like, are you outlining? It sounds like you're you're outlining the story in some form, and then you're kind of th- breaking into sequences. And yeah. You're kind of going sequence by sequence, whether you're writing or drawing first and so on. Yeah, exactly. So Arkland uh, is chapter-based, and each chapter has a key location. And so that was my starting point, is I had the, the general note of, you know, I sort of worked my way down. It's like, okay... First step was I wanted to make a science fiction fantasy book uh, that is about a fantasy world sort of turned on its head by the arrival of alien creatures and alien technology. That's my premise. And then from there, okay, what is the plot going to be from there? And that's where I came up with the idea for the contest that sort of uh, um, that sort of spurs the the main story arc forward. Uh, and then from there. Uh, I I decided I wanted it to be a a journey based story, and then I decided what locations I want to have, and um, thinking on a more visual level of what locations would be fun and interesting, and uh, have you know you know diversity uh, to mix up the story, and so that's where I came up with okay, I want you know, sort of this vast moors with a, with a lone hut on it, you know, just thinking of that stark imagery as something visually interesting. Uh, the idea of the, the town, the forest, the sewers, you know, the mountain as just sort of very general locations. Um, locations I had never worked with before in a comic that, uh, again, inspired by video games and other illustrators and comics, um, I'm, I'm just intrigued to... to uh, place a narrative in those places. Um, it's like levels in a game. Yeah, like very here's level the level, based. here's the dungeon, here's yeah. the forest. So of course I needed a sewer level and, and a mm-hmm. forest level. That's very video game inspired for sure. And it, and it winks at, at the reader in, in a way, you know, using those. Um, and then from there I just started arranging those locations like big tiles on on a timeline, you know, deciding where the, you know, the character has this objective and they need to get here and this is, you know, where they end up and where they make choices. And so deciding where those choices take place and arranging those locations based on that timeline. Um, yeah, I, I just sort of operate within these large chunks of, of these are things I'd like to have and these are the things that should happen and how can I fit those together? Or what happens if... You know, what happens in the main sort of turning point in this location? What if I swap that turning point for this other location? How does that play out differently? How do the characters move through that space differently? And how that location might connect to the next one? Does that make sense in a literal way, in a practical way? Uh, Does that seem appealing narratively? Um, yeah, I sort of run through the gamut of options and just try to pick the one that I think seems best. It um, sounds like you're mapping. So you're really mapping out, in, in many ways, this broad strokes story. Yes. I don't know what you're, you would be putting together as a document or anything, but it sounds like you're the, basically In this case, it was post-it notes on a wall. Really? Yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. And that's um, your outline in a manner of speaking. Yeah, yeah. Screenwriters will often use, like, cue cards stuck to a cork board and yeah. stuff. And same it, thing. Yeah. So that's sort of, you're getting the structure figured out, in other words. words. Yeah. Um, and outlining so, the story, getting all the core, like, chapters, in this case, I guess, down, or, be, or like, big story sequences. Yeah. And then, but, but you're not really drawing at this point, or are you just sketching ideas? Uh, this was, I mean, I'm sure I was sketching on the side, but it wasn't really connected to this, this narrative post-it note process. Um, and then once I knew the locations that I wanted and I nailed down, um, basically I was confident enough in, in how I had arranged these post-it notes through locations and through the plot um, then I started more seriously drawing and started with concept art. 
um, started planning out, um, yeah, uh, doing concept art for all these key locations that these chapters take place in. Um, and uh, so, how long does that kind of process take? Like, I, I guess the kind of question I'm kind of wondering here is in this part is. I, I find the process really interesting to get to, like, because like, I'm always telling people, you guys should do a, bit, a lot of work before you get to first draft. Oh, I see. So he, Scott just handed me a bunch of his concept actual art. Yes. You can buy prints of, I don't know, if can you do, can you find these things through your website or do you have to uh, find my, your show? My print store is still under construction, so. Okay, well, he's building a print store. But you I can find me at a variety of festivals uh, in Winnipeg and across Canada. Are you going to? A, are you? There's an upcoming festival. Are you going? FanQuest. FanQuest. Yes, I will. Yeah. yeah. So Scott will be at FanQuest if you're hearing this uh, early enough, and you're in Winnipeg. But uh, so he's got like days in the moors, night in the moors. Yes. Yeah, so day I in the s- town, night in the town, forest day, and these so those all sort of you can get, like these are all prints you have, of course, but these are also like concepts for the spaces, the locations, as you say. Yeah, and I and I drew these um, uh, as tools for myself. You know, I, I I just felt the need to draw these. I wasn't thinking like, oh, I'm going to make concept art and then I can sell that. That yeah. wasn't my process. Is I felt the need to plan these out, uh, and then after the fact, I realized, oh, maybe people actually want to buy these. Um, and so those early concept arts, uh, you can see the Moors day and night, the town day and night. Uh, mm. That that was just a way of me trying to, yeah, plan out those locations and coloring based on time of day. Um, using the same ink, so I, I inked a location, um, and then I just colored it differently in Photoshop. So it's the yeah the same outlines, just different coloring, um, and that just that gave me a blueprint of of the the, the type of environment uh, that it is and how characters could uh, act in those spaces. Um, the, the the general vibes of those locations, you know, depending upon the time of day, um, and things like that. It's really interesting to. Th- I, I think like the analogy or the analogous thing in um, like writing prose fiction might be, you know, or even a screenplay or something might be figuring out like what's the setting, and what are people doing in the setting. One of th- one of the things that I think is a, a useful test in editing that I advise people to do is like. When you're looking at your first draft of a story, say, you know, thinking through like, could this just happen in another setting? Yeah. Uh, and if it could, probably there's a problem with your setting. Yeah. You know, like ideally, characters should be interacting with the setting. You know, it should matter where they are. <laughs> like, it should matter whether they're in a forest or a sewer. Right? Yeah. You know, uh, and and it should matter whether they're on a boat or in the sky, uh, as and, opposed. And sometimes those are just. I mean, this is me just speaking personally, but I feel like those can just be symbolic reasons of Mm -hmm. the difference between this location and another. Yes, the events could physically unfold the same way, but it wouldn't feel the same and it wouldn't have the same sort of uh, general vibes. And I think that's Mm -hmm. an important important thing, especially in, in a visual medium like like comics well even just the tone is going to shift potentially like the tone might be all you're after with you know this setting or that setting yeah but i'd say like it could be a symbolic reason it could just be a plot thing where um like it really matters they're here now and then later we're going to come back there like that's a common i don't that's a common thing you'll see in uh movies a lot is you know the characters or the location at the start that gets established people come back to yeah uh, you know those same characters there in some form so and that there's no rules in, about it. In Arkland, for sure, is, mm-hmm. is the uh, starts in the moors and you know journeys forward and returns to the moors and almost gives you that sort of false ending. You know, if you were watching mm-hmm. this as a, as a film, you might not know how much time has elapsed and you're almost questioning, oh, is this the end? Is everything wrapping up? And then the twist happens of like, mm-hmm. oh no, where this is something new and bigger happens and and sparks the sort of third act of the story. Um, yeah, and I think it's interesting to think through, like, um, again, and thinking through, like, story sequence, just to think through, like, okay, well, where are these things happening and so on. It's very much a, um, um, I think, the way, a, like, a screenwriter would work in, in some respects. But also, of course, like, in comics, um, it really makes sense to be thinking through, like, you know, you don't want, like, depending on what kind of story you're telling or what kind of, I guess, like, tone or, or vibe you want, 
especially if you're thinking like you want that video game, even if you're not thinking, but if you're just influenced by like the video game um, idea of like these sharp demarcations between like level one and level two, yeah. <laughs> and like all the different ways, like when Link walks into a dungeon, you know, it's you know, there's a whole different set of things that. Yeah. You know, a different button does a different thing now. Like, there's all sorts of different ways in which um, the environments in games, especially, like they make so much difference in narratively, uh, and even your controls in a game will sometimes shift. You know, mm-hmm. and, and like everything's different in certain types of environments. And I think that um, it's an interesting way to think through story in terms of like, okay, well, what are the different options here where character could do this or could do that like when when they're the bar for example like at that one part where you have them playing a video game like mm-hmm. it's, you know she starts she's like playing these little games at home and then there's like this you know of course the bar would have an arcade game yeah uh, and then like, it looks nicer than hers at home which seems mm-hmm. very cobbled together yeah and it's like it's 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 another reason for her to go to this bar like there's different plot reasons but it's like it, like piggybacking onto like the plot reason she might be there there's like this almost like this character or emotional reason, I guess you'd say, that she's there. And then yeah. that starts to kind of play into... Um, that. Well, that's, I think, you know, ideally, I think that makes, like, the reader kind of notice the, like, the look of the comic they've been reading compared to, like, how these, like, video games look. Uh, and, like, I think there's interesting, like, ways in which you can kind of ladder together these, um, or ladder up these, like, little... Like this meta, I guess, effects. Oh yeah, or, absolutely, and and yeah, and there are certainly video games that you know look like Arkland uh, in an illustrated way, but then within Arkland you have you know that that sort of deeper uh, zooming in of of you know even more retro and more simplified games. Um, so in a sense, it, it it almost feels like a game within a game, and you know Arkland as a whole being you know, kind of structured like a video game and, and almost level-based in its chapters. Um, but then you take that very microscopic, pixelated level of those video games that you can compare all the way up to the highest level, which is these alien arcs, which, you know, high up in the sky just kind of look like pixels. And so it's mm-hmm. almost... That was my initial sort of uh, metaphor structure of relating the macro to the micro um, relating something ex- extremely mundane and everyday and and almost uh, an, an impractical, you know, pastime, you know, uh, mm-hmm. relating, relating that to something religious and something that gives a whole, you know, group of people purpose. Um, sure. And, and the ritual aspect of just the repeatability. Yeah. And, like... They're always going and doing these same sorts of things, and what does it really mean or matter beyond maybe what it like on this grander scale? Yeah. Uh, one of the things I think. So, how, how long does it take to do something like that? Like, what's your process in terms of like? So, with Arkland, for example, just as an Arkland as an example, because it's probably the most. If you were just like glance at it on a table, it's probably the most conventional. Object <laughs> like it's yes, one yeah. book, it's self-contained. It's front to back. The story doesn't read pretty linearly. Yeah, yeah, and you know it's got other things that are kind of more unusual in it. But you know, at, at a, a glance, it's like a comic. normal book. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, what's the um, timeline of that? Working on something like that. Uh, well, I started planning it, talking about concept art and and uh, plot writing. I started it in 2014. And uh, it, you know, for a frame of reference, it released in spring of uh, 2018. Um, But most of that time was planning and, you know, somewhat dragging my heels and working on other things and finishing school and stuff like that. Um, But the majority of the book itself, what you actually see in the printed book, I produced in 2017, uh, basically working from January, well, maybe about like, 13, 14 months straight working from, you know, late 2016 to early 2018. Um, you know, 2017 was my year of working on Arkland. That's basically all I did just nonstop was really? working on this book. Well, After you'd already planned everything. 
Yes, for yes. it. So that was and you'd me sold it just, by that point then. Sorry, you sold it by that point. As yes, well? and that was the main reason why I was sure. working on it nonstop and not dragging my heels as much because I had a publishing contract that yeah. I needed to honor and was trying to uh, finish in as timely a fashion as as I could, which turned out <coughs> to be not as timely as uh, I or they would have liked, but. Here we are. It's finished, and people like it. So <laughs> it's a miracle those deadlines. I I, I just got a uh, grad to finish a um a book at end. I started working on this book in like two thousand and five, yeah. and so I'm talking you know. But I'm putting this grad together, and somebody was asking me they're like, "Well, how long are you gonna need to finish this book?" I'm like, "Oh, it'll be done like." You know, less than a year. Oh, <laughs> like, sure. But yeah. you're like, well, you've been working on this thing for like 14 years. I'm like, well, working on it is a real loose phrase. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah for you sure. You know, when you don't have a deadline on it, yeah, you're working on it. Yeah. But, uh, you know. And that's what Arkland was for from 2014 till, you know, mid-2016 was sort of a just slow sort of chipping away at it kind of process and also just sort of sitting on it I, I I call it wheel spinning when you just sort of let something stew and you're you let your your you know the the cogs in your brain aren't engaging with each other they're just spinning and not producing anything and I feel like that's part of the process and I've come to terms with that you know so many of my new ideas I'm just you know trying to beat my head against that wall trying to bust through this plot hole or figure out this story arc or trying to develop this character and sometimes you just got to let those wheels spin and and that what feels like doing nothing is letting your brain rest or I feel like is letting my brain rest and eventually through that that sort of yeah that process of what feels like nothing uh, you end up you know finding your answers but it's not nothing I mean you're doing other things correct like so like but how does it different if you're working on something like a serialized? So you've, you've done these two little serialized projects. Yes. One is uh, I was holding and looking at a little flip book called Ocasomoso. So and that's also available online. Uh, it was published in the Uniter. We're on the University of Winnipeg's campus here, and so it was it was originally published in the University of Winnipeg's newspaper, the Uniter, and is also again online at Scott's uh, Scott Yes, you can read the whole thing there. Um, and then Boreal, like I say, it was published, publishing recently in Manitoban, which you can also read, you know, online. Yeah, so I've done two very different uh, weekly comics: one for the University of Winnipeg student newspaper, and more recently, one Boreal for the University of Manitoba student newspaper. There, you have like a weekly deadline. Like, are you doing the whole thing and then like approaching them, or are you working week by week on this? So, comic? well, they both came out of very different reasons. Uh, Okasamoso came out of time when I was working at the Uniter as the uh, uh, design editor, I, I think was the title of my position, basically doing layout and graphics for the Uniter uh, newspaper every week. Um, that, that was my job. Um, and part of that position was filling the comic section, which we did not have enough contributors for at the time. So I felt like, well, I guess this, it's part of my job to fill this, and there's no one to fill it, so I guess I'll make a weekly comic. So I did. Um, which turned into a bi-weekly comic because, you know, I ran out of time and uh, we had, you know, some contributors to fill in the, the weeks between. Um, so that was kind of born out of necessity, but basically I just tapped into a, uh, one of my many, you know, ideas, you know, sitting on my back burner, and this one was, oh, I want to try making a comic that combines photography and illustration um, that tells the story of this, you know, tiny little spaceman uh, who's making off-base observations about the world uh, and that's about it and it's mostly silly um, it's actually not that silly though it's oh, a I'm very mournful so. sad little it story is, it, you know, it, like the world is there's no hope for this world well but maybe of. there is he'll go back and he can't quite give it up it, it's got a, like a, a very poignant little uh, by the time you get to the end anyway it's got a very poignant little yeah, end yeah it, it, it's yeah. only 12 issues slash 12 you know like each, each comic is four panels. Four panel strip. It's pretty conventional yeah. in some respects. Four panel strip, but it's a, but it is like this serialized little story, and it has an interesting set of turns every now, you know, and then it ends with this very kind of. It does know. come across a little melancholy in the mm-hmm. end, um, which I like. I think that's my favorite mood to tell a story in. 
Um, uh, it's very different from, say, like, you know, taking years to yes. ruminate and plan. Uh, and so more recently, Boreal, which was published in the Manitoban student newspaper, uh, that was a, a paid position at, uh, at the Manitoban um, just producing that weekly comic, which was, I believe, is a brand new position. I don't believe they've ever hired staff before just to produce a, a comic, not as part of an, another job. Uh, and they approached me, actually, after doing Okasomoso in the Uniter, and they had seen my work with Arclan because I'm, I'm friends with, with a number of staff there. So they were familiar with my work and that I you know, knew how to produce you know, competent comics, and so they were trying to open up this position, and they felt like I would be the right person to test that through. Um, so they, yeah, they approached me. They said, we're starting this new position, and they basically let me do whatever. Hmm. Uh, and I came up with uh, this idea for Boreal first, and I had a meeting with them just to make sure that this sounded okay and that it was going to you know, physically fit in the paper, how much space I had and how much story I could tell in that you know, real estate on the page. Um, and then from there, uh, yeah, I was basically producing it you know, a week at a time, uh, but I had a full story arc planned uh, for all 26 issues of the Manitoban, which coincided into 26 strips of Boreal. Um, yeah, so I, I had a full story arc and a beat by beat what I think would happen in each 26 uh, segment. Um, but yeah, basically working, you know, a week at a time. Uh, had you always worked that way? Like, your first real comics, I guess you'd say, would be Romulus and Remus. Yes. Uh, you did, uh, sir, is, which, you know, are kind of two issues, although they look like they're basically two different graphic novels. They're different lengths and everything. Yes, yeah. Um, uh, and this is a... So you had done this in high school, more or less. End of high school. End so of high school. I came up with the idea for Romulus and Remus uh, in the summer after high school, and then immediately after after that, I, I was starting first year university at the University of Manitoba, um, going through fine arts, and yeah, at that point, I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing, I mean, I was just starting university, I didn't know what my artistic career was going to be, I didn't know how to make comics at that point, um, and I hadn't really explored that many comics either, um, so it was just a weird little hobby idea I had of making this action horror comic that you know, for all I knew at that point, it could have turned into, you know, nothing that was just a fun experiment and I don't even show anyone. Um, but what it turned into, you know, after three years of slowly chipping away at it, um, you know, I produced a, a 34-page, you know, action horror comic um, that, that yeah, that I, I printed and I self-published and... and sold and, and a lot of people have read and enjoyed and and have asked me to continue the the series um which i still haven't decided if i will um so is that sort of your way of trying to teach yourself how to do comics was that basically kind of the impetus of basically it? i mean yeah i guess i'm not much for for practice is i just like making it up as i go along and i figure i'd, I'd rather make something and and have something to show for it and still call it practice rather than just sort of toiling away at something that is not a finished product. I don't know, that I might find more discouraging through that process because, uh, you know, you almost don't have anything to show for it. But you don't have stakes, right? Like, I, I always... I suggest this, too, and I, I think the same way because I remember years and years... I made, I, years and years ago, I made a short film uh, and I, the reason I did it was I was just, I, I had taken, a, I was taking a class in the Winnipeg Film Group. And it was a class on like how do you hand process Super 8 and 60 millimeter film. So it's like you get best in black and white film, you like put it in a bucket. Like here's how you do it. So yeah. I paid I don't know five bucks or whatever to make, to take this class, and so you had to shoot a bunch of film and then process it in a bucket. And, and I, you know, and and the way I approached it was I'll come up with a silent film comedy script and I'll shoot that and then when I process it it'll look like 
oh, this is like a silent chaplain comedy that like nobody bothered right. to preserve. <laughs> you know, so it's fine for me to screw it up and whatever. But but we still like. Like, like you're just supposed to shoot tests of anything. Right. But I ended up shooting a whole thing, and I, you know, developed it, and it you turned out well. You didn't have to go through all that trouble. And I sold it to the Comedy Network. Oh, know? wow. And, and, like, it, um, it, it was the kind of thing where, like, I kind of lucked out in some ways, because I just happened that, like, I didn't do it myself. Like, somebody else, like, at the Funa Big Film Group, where I was taking the workshop, like, when it was done, like, they liked it enough to, like, throw it in this batch of things, and, you know, and this, this place bought it. But, um... It, it was precisely um, for that same sort of thing. I was just thinking, like, well, what's going to get me, you know, through this <laughs> and, like, keep my interest in it and so on? It's like, I have to have some sort of... It has to feel like it has stakes to me. Yeah. You know, like, I'm doing it for real. Otherwise, it's too easy to just quit once something else catches your eye or whatever. Yeah, and, and... And you don't learn if you quit things all the time. And you get to sort of a point where you're not really sure if you're ready, if you're just... If you're just practicing at making something you know you go down that rabbit hole of like okay when do I actually start making the thing as opposed to practicing through making the thing I think well I think you learn a lot more through that process because you're you're doing everything and you're finding you're finding uh, things that you didn't know were part of the process that you that you might struggle with or that you might even like and then you'll find new vocations through that um, like learning you know layout and graphic design and and you know the whole printing process you know was really fascinating and that's not something I would have learned uh, unless I had you know self-published a comic um, and even, but, even but, if it was an abject failure you would have learned that and like oh, yeah. gone, you know then like becoming a graphic designer or whatever like y- y- you know it, like again doing it for real sort of gives you that it, 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 you, you get the insight into like how people really do it which is always to me fascinating because it's always like something you don't expect it's like like when I first started talking to comics uh, with people with comic creators like you and you know uh, and other people I know one of the things that I really had never thought about was like oh if you're writing a comic you have to think about when people turn the page oh yeah like it's such a basic simple thing that you know probably to you but like I never considered it because of course it's just not how you th- you don't think about that when you're reading a book yeah, or or people think about a comic page as a as a standalone object, where when in reality, no, you have to think of book two pages, mm-hmm. and the difference between what's on the left side and what's on the right side is huge. Um, it's you know not just in terms of of the page turn surprise, which is you know a big part of of that that page by page storytelling, but just what you're observing, you know. On, on the left side and the right side and, and how that transitions. And when you turn that page, you're going to see the right side before you see the left side. And so if you put, you know, something dramatic, you know, way at the end of that far right page, you're going to see that coming before you've even read the left page. Mm-hmm. And and so you're pacing it out that way um, and, and how your eye moves you know down that page and then onto the next page you know there's a lot of layout and uh, sort of just general sort of artistic composition elements that you need to keep in mind that that keep you reading in you know in a logical way and you don't confuse your reader I think that's a big thing is as soon as your reader gets even a little bit lost you're gonna risk them just putting it down and saying like oh, I'll come back to that later and and probably they won't you know, you, you need to keep them engaged and, and keep them uh, feeling like, like they understand how they're reading this and how they're progressing through it. Yeah, and if you're doing um, it, if you're drawing page by page, you know, but and you're not doing it for real, Yeah. Uh, well, you you know, now you don't have to start putting the pages together and yeah. think and bind them and lay them out and send them to the printer or whatever. Like, you don't have to think about that second step, maybe, you know. You might have, like, academically thought about it but if yeah. you're not doing it like you don't really know oh yeah the idea you know. of thinking about the, yeah thinking about doing something versus actually doing it are, are miles apart um, but the other thing though is about you know my process is coming from I was going through fine arts uh, while I was working on Romulus and Remus issue one and uh, through those classes you don't 
have a lot of time to practice. You're you're just moving from one project to another, uh, from one you know class critique to another, and that's how those classes operate. Is is you're learning as you go, but you're you don't have time to to just make work for practice sake. You're always making work for a finished product on tight deadlines, and so I came at it with that approach too. Is that yeah, I just need to learn while I'm making it, and and you know I don't have the same deadline as school, but um, but thinking about it as a finished art product, and and but also thinking of it as as an art product rather than you know a piece of 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 literature or something that you know I need to pitch to someone and and see if I get publishers interested. That wasn't a concept to me. I was thinking of this as as an art piece. You know, if if you're gonna make a painting or a sculpture, you you just you just do it. I mean, yes, you could mm-hmm. apply for grants or something like that to fund it, but in practice, you know, you're the artist, you create it. And so I didn't think of this as a publishing project. I just thought of it as an art project that has writing in it, um, and and happens to take the form of a book. And so if I wanted that to see the light of day, I just need to figure out a way to make that myself. Every time I apply for a grant, I say in the grant, you know, I'll do this project by such, you know, this project will take me this many, you know, this long, but if I get the grant, it'll only take me this long. (laughs) Yeah. Because I want to like indicate, like, I'm not just like, I'm going to do this stuff. It's just that, you know, it would really help (laughs) if, you know, I could focus on it and I could get it done faster and it would help my career would help, you know, it would just help the project because I don't have to splinter into, you know, doing all these other things. Um, and it helps to have that deadline, I think, too. Like, you know, you yes. got to file a report by this date or you got to, you know, submit to the publisher by this date. I, I think Gregory once said to me, like, if he's, if I remember right, he once told me, like, when he really needs to buckle down and work, he'll just call the printer and set a date to him. He has to deliver the file to the yeah. printer. He's like, I, you know, he'll, he'll, like, pay them some money and then he'll, like, yeah. and he's like, but well, now I'm stuck, you know, I got to be done. Yeah. Which can be good or bad. It can I be think, good or I bad. That works for some people, but. It works for Greg, but I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I, I could see, like, it not working. <laughs> and yeah. If you don't know what you're doing, like, it's different if you know sure. what you're doing and you know what, you know, how fast you can work. Sometimes you don't know that, like, when you're starting out, you don't know how fast oh, yeah. you can work. Like, you don't like, know what you can do in a day. Like Arkland, for instance, you know, was a, a huge project. And uh, like I said, I was taking a long time just planning it. And I was really happy when I got that publishing deal you know, you know, obviously because you know it's a publishing deal, and that's that was incredible. Uh, but also just because now I had a, a deadline that now it, I wasn't just making this for myself; that somebody else was waiting for this, and I, I owed someone else this product in a timely fashion. Uh, but even with that, I took a lot longer than than they wanted and than I wanted, and so that was a huge learning process of. Like oh, a deadline isn't everything. That even when I have that that fire, you know, burning that is is telling me to that this is has to be done by a certain date. There's that perfectionist in me that still takes mm-hmm. over and doesn't finish it until I feel like it's actually finished. Um, so that was a really interesting learning process. Learning, yeah, the difference between between you know deadlines and my own personal goals. And how to mitigate the two. Well, and also if you're using doing a project like like that's longer, like just oh, literally was, yeah. longer than you've done before. Going from a 54-page book, you know, mm-hmm. with Ramius and Remus issue two, to a 260-page book, that was mm-hmm. that was immense. That was, I, I think, yeah, I think the point where I reached the the 60-page mark in Arkland. And I realized this is the equivalent of making all of Romulus and Remus issue two, which is the longest thing I've ever done. So at that point, and I'm still not even halfway through this thing was like, yeah, I, in a way, like I found it funny that the, the, the final chapter in Arkland is in the final objective is this character ascending this mountain because it, it really felt like that is like, I'm, I'm, I'm marching steadily towards this, this huge, this huge task, this huge obstacle, and and like one way or another, I'm gonna get to the top of that thing. 
and yeah, it was, you know, it it was. I guess if I'm if I'm gonna keep writing this mountain metaphor, it <laughs> was a lot of work, and it was very tiring and very stressful, but uh, being at the top of it feels pretty good. And yeah, but it took a lot to get here. Well, thanks so much for talking to me. And um, again, that's scottafordart.com where yes. you can find uh, more information about Scott's books and other projects, but also, you know, actually read some of them. Uh, although even the ones you read, like I say, like if you can, if you can read whole, all the giants well online, but it's a whole different thing to have that object in your hand and to be able to like look at it all at once and unfold it and so on. So I really encourage people to get uh, some of Scott's books, but, but you can read quite a lot of his work online. Um, so thanks again for talking to me and uh, uh, everyone. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great. And everyone um, listening, uh, again, check out writingtherongway.com, uh, scottafordart.com, and keep writing the wrong way. Yeah.